Delgado, curling out, Aguinaga, Hello and welcome to episode 3 of our new series on World Football Index where we look at some of the most important, influential and interesting stories in world football. In this episode we are going to be talking about a 1-1 draw between Ecuador and Uruguay in 2001, which on the face of it doesn't sound like an ideal topic, but as you'll discover in this pod it is one of the greatest moments in Ecuadorian history with quite the backstory to it as well. Joining me on this episode to discuss this key moment in Ecuadorian football is a voice you would have heard on our previous two episodes, and that's Tim Vickery. Tim, welcome back again, and with this being your third consecutive episode, that makes it your hat-trick, so we'll let you take the virtual WFI match ball home. (laughs) Thank you very much. Uh, And uh, if I could just start the ball rolling, because this is a subject dear to my heart, not just because I was standing behind the goal where Ivan Caviedes is headed into the Uruguayan net and qualified uh, Ecuador for, for their, their first ever World Cup. But also because going back uh, mid-1997, uh, I'd just done in Brazil, I'd just done a, a, a TV show for a production company for the BBC. And I was back in London briefly. Uh, and the uh, BBC World Service were looking for someone to cover South America. And they called me in. And they said, we've got a radio show on football coming up uh, later on today. Uh, we're going to give you a test if, if you're going to have a job with us. And the test is uh, record a one-minute piece, any topic you like on South American football. And the topic I chose was Ecuador. Uh, and that my piece was about, remember, this is the, the something, mid-1997. I said, look out for Ecuador in the future. It looks like they're just going to miss out on France 98, but don't bet against Ecuador making their World Cup debut in 2002 if only all of my predictions came that right i should have retired then should have retired at the top in in my in my notes for this podcast that was literally going to be my first question when you first came over here what were your first impressions of ecuadorian football and did you see their rise coming at all well i think there are for me there there are two aspects to this there's the continental aspects and there's the specific ecuadorian aspect and i'm delighted we got the chance i've got the chance to learn from xavier especially about the the second of those two and yeah as as jim just mentioned they're also joining us on this one is Javier Zavala uh, he's a passionate Ecuadorian football expert an analyst um, and writer and uh, many of our long-term listeners would have heard him before I'm sure welcome back again to the World Football Index podcast Javier how are you doing I'm doing great I'm very excited to be here I'm extremely fortunate to be able to share this panel with uh with Tim and looking forward to hear all his thoughts and experience about it because as he already mentioned I have probably a very Ecuadorian bias or centric view of what we all Ecuadorians lived through the night late 90s to towards the process in 2002 so I'm extremely excited to see his point of view of how he saw the process going and how he evidently predicted the rise of Ecuador in 1997. So, Tim, please go ahead, continue. Yeah, well, for me, there are two aspects. The first is the organizational one. Um, One of the decisive moments in South American international football is the start of the Copa America in 1916. And at the start, it was played, they tried to play annually, 
uh, and it, it uh, resulted in a rapid rise of standards from Uruguay, Argentina and Brazil, which led just 14 years later to the birth of the World Cup. So that, that's a hugely important moment. Uh, not quite as important, but not far off for me, is the birth in 1996 of the new marathon World Cup qualification format, where all 10 of the, the continent's countries are playing each other home and away. Before that, um, the continent was divided into either two or three groups, and the games used to be played very quickly. And it meant that in uh, for, for, for decades, all South American international football was almost like a tournament. You get, you get a side together for a couple of months to play some games, and then there, there could be gaps of years between competitive games. Now, if you're Brazil or Argentina, you can fix up high-profile high friendlies, lucrative friendlies in this, this time. If you're Ecuador, you can't. And the Ecuador that we're talking about had never played a full international in Europe. That's how inexperienced they were at, um, at, at this time. So uh, after 1996 you get a, 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 the kind of calendar that European national teams take for granted. Regular competitive games, guaranteed TV income, the chance to invest, the chance to keep a side together. Uh, and that you can see clearly how that leads to a rise in standard of the less traditional nations and how it makes World Cup qualification in South America the most competitive on the planet. When before that change... Ecuador, yes, they had nearly got to the, the World Cup in England in, in, in 1966, where the great uh, Alberto Spencer came back from Uruguay and played for them. Um, but they'd only ever won, I think, five World Cup qualifiers before that change, before the marathon format comes in. So that marathon format gives them the platform to get better. And you can see it with Venezuela. And Venezuela, who uh, back then was still absolutely nothing, uh, they, uh, three years ago, they were second in the World Under-20 Cup, and that's the generation that they trust will take them to their first World Cup in 2022. Uh, that process happened with Ecuador a little bit earlier. So that, that's the organizational thing that allowed Ecuador to develop. What is, is more interesting for me and what I'm, what I'm very keen to learn from Xavier about is the Ecuadorian aspects, because you can see, you can see the rise from, I think, 1989, the Copa America in 1989 in Brazil, where they have good results. You know, they beat Uruguay. Uruguay reached the final. They drew with the world champions, Argentina, Diego Maradona. And it, it seems to me, and after that, they're, they're, on a, they're on a roll. I mean, they hosted the Copa in, in, in 1993 at home ground, reached uh, the, 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 the semifinals. Uh, and it seems to me that the, the figure of the, the, the outsider coach is vitally important. And they had at that time, in the from from the late 80s into the mid-90s, they had the, the fellow from Macedonia, uh, Dusan Draskovic. Now, it, it seems to me that the outsider has an advantage as a national team coach in Ecuador because it, it, he, he can stand a little bit above the endless political infighting between the two major cities, the coastal uh, uh, city of Guayaquil, and the mountain fortress up in the Andes of Quito. It's easier for the outsider to not be swayed by the by the, the fight for political influence between these two. And we'll see in this story, the story of the 2002 side, you know, uh, Hernandario Gomez got shot because he got caught up in the in the intricate politics going on in, in he took a bullet, uh, the intricate politics going on in Ecuador at the time. So you, you get an outsider coach, which I think is interesting. Perhaps... 
1993 Copper America is, oh, and th- this fascinates me, the moment where the marriage between Ecuador and Quito is cemented, the idea of that being their fortress, because that's where they win most of their points in, in World Cup qualification. And also, Draskovic seemed to be very, very successful in identifying a generation of players who could uh, who could carry Ecuadorian football forward. And this meant increasingly Afro-descendants, black Ecuadorians. And if you go to Ecuador, yeah. you don't see that, that many black faces. I mean, the, the black, the Afro-descendant population is, is relatively small. It's very small as a percentage and, 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 and is, kind of reduced, is, is mainly limited to, to a couple of areas. You know, Esmeraldas, the Valido shirt, the, the, the charter, the, the kind of, I think, I think there were former, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, former banana plantations where, where enslaved people were, were brought across. Uh, and uh, I, I remember Ecuadorian football when it was basically kind of little, lat, little Latinos. And then suddenly the, 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 the whole thing is changing because the, 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 under the physical build of the Afro descendants, it, it allows Ecuador to develop in different directions and, 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 and play a different type of football as well. So that, that's what I was thinking of, of, of the being the domestic dynamic in, in Ecuador. Do you think I'm right, Xavier? And, and, and do you have other things to add about how Ecuador managed to take advantage of this new World Cup qualifying format in order to make so much progress so quickly? I think it would, it would be extremely hard to put it in a better, in a better way. Indeed, Francisco Maturana who is the outsider that started in for the qualification in front 98, it's a key component of, of this process. Because as you mentioned, Dusan Draskovic, what he started is was in the proper physical development of the players and identified, like you mentioned, players that were in prime position to develop into great athletes, right? So as you will remember, those um, early 90s Ecuadorian teams were mostly um, players of black descent, but as well, a few technical developed players, right? Like stars like Alex Aguina was there and he obviously stood out within the group. But moving forward towards uh, the hiring of Maturana and of course, when Luis Chireboga Costa, the president uh, of the Ecuadorian Federation were two key parts of this story, right? So Maturana coming from a very rich uh, experience with Colombia came in with a team that already had the talent. And unfortunately, like you mentioned, we barely meet France 98 in a very uh, unlucky way, right? Like that, that campaign had games that included a loss against Bolivia and a tie against Venezuela, right? So those are, those get, are games that Ecuador should be winning. If those five points come to our, uh, to our side, we would have finished fourth in the qualifiers and hence get into the World Cup. Anyways, um, Luis Chiriboga, as the president of the federation, make made huge changes, right? It was a matter of mentality as well. It wasn't just about building the training grounds. Um, it wasn't about creating just friendlies with bigger international teams. It was basically, this is our time. This is when we do it, right? It's about being more ambitious, right? That's why he brought Maturana. He brought Maturana, which was a coach with so much um, experience and I would fit, right? Because as you would also know, football evolves. So we were moving out of a very athlete-dependent football style into towards, hopefully, a closer look to what Colombia was in the mid-90s, in which we used more of our technical players 
and we can get the best out of the athletes that we have on the team. Anyways, moving forward in that Maturana process, we already started seeing new faces that will be key components for the full process, right? We start seeing Jose Francisco Ceballos, Ulises Hela Cluz, Clever Chala, Agustin El Tin Delgado, and then some regular faces that would also be part of the beginning of the process of 2002. For example, Ivan Hurtado, Ángel um, Cuchillo Fernández, and of course, Alex Aguinaga, right? So moving forward, even though we were unlucky during the France 98 qualifiers, right? The team was already building on, on their previous developments or improvements, right? We have Hernando Darío Gómez coming in, and uh, that's when the magic begins. Um, a coach that is famously known for his charisma. Uh, we're not strangers to see him dance in the sidelines of the games, right? It's something that, for example, we, when the, during the qualifiers, he used to come out first before the team to rile up the fans. I noticed that when I watched, uh, when I watched the Ecuador-Brazil game back uh, the other day. Uh, yeah, he really whipped that crowd up before, before the game, didn't he? And, and, that's, and that's a fantastic strategy because, again, not too long ago, I was uh, invited to a different podcast to discuss the current situation of Ecuador, in which we touch over Hernandario Gomez. And I was stating that Hernandario Gomez right now wasn't what we needed. However, back in 98 was exactly what we needed, right? Someone that could push us forward, convince us that we were ready, that this is our time. Some other coaches will bring the, the pressure onto them in harmful ways, defying the referee, defying the rivals. Hernandario Gomez wasn't like that. It was all about the enjoyment of experience, how we grow, how we grow together, creating a culture of unity with the team. So all that, all that dancing, all those comments, some of them that we, some comments that we now look forward in disagreement, but back in that moment were key for the team to move forward. One of the greatest examples of the comments that, that I don't agree right now, but I keep thinking and repeating to myself, is that when we actually get to the World Cup, the first thing that Hernando Rio Gomez says is, we're here to learn. We're going to go there and learn. And, of course, you have this new generation of, of Ecuadorian fans that are so excited to get to the World Cup, and then you have their expectations drop down in just a few words. But, however, that's what the players needed. Like even with comments like that, um, the, the 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 initial performance from the national team was extremely nervous and hesitant, right? And I'm pretty sure we're going to get into more details about our World Cup forward. Uh, Javier, I just want to touch on some place that Tim briefly mentioned, and that's El Chota Valley. Uh, this this has always fascinated me about this story because eight of the players who end up in the in the World Cup squad, I believe, in 2002 all come from El Chota Valley, which only has a population of around 25,000 people. Dusan Drezkovic, the Macedonian, we've, we've already mentioned, I believe that he was one of the people key in sort of expanding the scouting um, for, for future national team players around the country, and that's when they started to discover this, this area, which is in, it's a pretty isolated area, high up in the Ecuadorian Andes, 
in uh, in northern Ecuador, and he discovered this valley where you know these Afro Afro Ecuadorian players they had exceptional physical and mental capacity. He described it as in an interview I saw a few years ago, and this area not just for football but for many sports in the last 20 years has become this kind of sport this center of sporting ex- excellence in the country they've produced boxers they've produced people in the, in the martial arts they've gone to the olympics i believe and yeah it's it, there is also this incredible love for football of course and and when I, when i've seen documentaries on the area it's clear that you know the kids are always playing there on it's, it's a, you know it's a very dry area of uh, of ecuador i believe that the pitches are basically dust bowls but you know there's such a love for the game there it's a very poor area it, it, it was pretty much left to its own devices until recent years when players like ulises de la cruz and augustin delgado two of the t- key players from from the valley you know they started to give something back to the area and and I think schools, hospitals and football facilities have been built in the area thanks to those players. But, you know, before then, it was a classic tale of this very poor, undeveloped area producing players of international class. It's just remarkable, though, given the population. It is, and I think Tim presented it very well, mentioning Esmeraldas as well, because those are the key uh, places where the players from ended up in the national team, right? And it's not just a scouting, it's a lot of the player development as well, right? Because uh, as football evolves with uh, with higher resources that the Federation had, right, and building a training grounds, some projects have started to happen that will end up uh, bringing those players uh, into the into teams, into academies. Well, they don't we don't call it academies in Ecuador, but basically the clubs, but Long story short, that, that scouting, that player development ended up benefiting the national team in the short term, medium term, and long term. But indeed, and as you mentioned, it's, it, it is very poor areas, right? And, and as we see it throughout football countries, football countries, football is part of the culture. And when there are not resources or any alternative, what do the kids do? Basically play football. If you have a ball, Awesome, you're lucky. If you don't, you play with that empty water bottle, right? And you have two rocks as, as your side posts, and that's how you play, right? Um, in some of the fields that you mentioned, um, you, but before you play, you start taking the rocks out of the field before you start playing, right? That's part of a, a standard process of playing, right? So indeed, uh, those key areas are a, a key component of our, of our recent rich football history. Yeah, like I say, just a fascinating area, and, and it's also produced um, some key music as well in, in Ecuador, the bomba music. about the 2002 World Cup qualifying campaign. It started, of course, in in 2000, and Ecuador got off to a pretty decent start. They beat Venezuela 2-0. They narrowly lost to Brazil. Javier, this, this really set the tone for what was to become a very impressive 
qualifying campaign overall. Ecuador would finish second um, in the group, quite a way behind Bielsa's Argentina, um, <laughs> but but ahead of Brazil, who who they who they beat at home in in what is one of the most historical matches in in Ecuadorian football history. Um, and and yeah, what's really striking. To me, you know, Ecuador didn't score too many goals, but they didn't concede much either. And, and we kind of touched on it already. But this, from what I've seen of the games, I didn't follow it live at the time, as I was, you know, still still in England back then, and, and we didn't have access to Commonwealth World Cup qualifying, unfortunately. Um, but for, from the games I've watched back since, you know, this was a very organised Ecuador side, I, I, I would say, and uh, and yeah, and looked to play on the on the counter when they could. Um, I'm really glad that you touched the campaign because this is the most passionate moment or part of the subject, right? Because um, as you mentioned, the first round was a lot of uh, up and ups and downs, but we finished that first round beating Chile, right? So we beat Chile for the first time in our history. So for for a lot of us Ecuadorians, that's um, that's a key moment. That's when we start believing. That's when we say, okay, this this could happen. Okay, so we have to make make up our points between Colombia and Uruguay and see what we can do with it with, at the end so we can do this, right? And then the second round starts and we have that insane victory against Brazil. A Brazil that, of course, changed coaches throughout the qualifiers, but it was a Brazilian team that had Lucio in the back, that had Juninho in the midfield with Emerson and Bampeta, and a front, they had Romario, Ronaldinho Gaucho, and Rivaldo. So it wasn't just a regular Brazilian team. It was a very equipped Brazilian team, right? That's the team that we beat 1-0, right? Um, of course, they had their chances. Ceballos had a wonderful game and so on, but that's part of the excitement of the campaign, right? It's a game that we went, like, we went straight forward against Brazil, and we ended up winning. Magic, right? And then we have that victory against Paraguay, in which we had a red card, and we started losing 1-0. And we had a red card. I think Augusto Poroso got the red card in the 30th minute or so. And we came back, right, against a powerful Paraguay team, right? And, of course, uh, we have that game against Peru that we... We tied the game, and then in the 90th minute, Angel Fernandez plays a beautiful long pass to Agustin Delgado, and he scores in the 90, I think, 93rd minute or so. Yeah, the the comment I've mentioned this to you the other day, but the commentary on on Ecuadorian television for this goal is is one to behold. The the commentator just starts laughing and sort of crying at the same time with joy. La pelota está en poder de jugador Fernández, el cuchillo que entró. Adelanta la bola, delgado solito, peludiati la va. And that's and that's that is a wonderful event, right? Like because we're all together in this. Like back in that moment, right? All the channels in Ecuador grouped together uh, to to broadcast the games, 
right? So you had uh, broadcasters working together that they don't usually work together. And it's, it's all laughing and crying and joy and comments like, can we do it? Can we do it? Yes, we can. We're almost there, right? So for example, for that Peru, Ecuador, Peru game, right? That's when the song Si Se Puede started playing, right? Like after that, that's when that song that is such an iconic moment of Ecuadorian football history, it's, 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 uh, it's played for the ears of all Ecuadorians, right? So it's so hard not to feel or just full of energy about this, right? Like for me, um, of course, before doing the pod, I was watching a few games. I was reading a few articles. Um, I was going over some pictures that I had, right? And I'm not going to lie. Like uh, some teary eyes happened every now and then because it's such an emotional moment of my life, right? It's one of the moments that I will definitely say that are part of why I work in football right now, why youth development coaching is part of my life, why game analysis is part of my life, because it's the passion that this brings. And this campaign is a key component of that in my life. So, and then we move from that Ecuador-Peru game, then we destroy Bolivia 5-1, and then the games against Uruguay. Now, before that game against Uruguay, you have to remember that in the first round, Uruguay destroyed us 4-0. It was an absolute embarrassment of a game, right? They, they completely dominated, and 4-0 was, they let us go easy, if I'm actually honest. But again, it's a solid Uruguay team. Right, you have Paolo Montero in the back. That is a no-nonsense defender. Right, Fabian Carini. During that time, I think he was the goalkeeper, the third goalkeeper at Juventus. But again, so you mentioned the tactical part. Um, the modern Ecuadorian identity had us playing with fast counterattacks through the wings. Right, that's what we see. We saw the last decade with Antonio Valencia, Jefferson Montero, and so on. However, this Ecuadorian team played in the counterattack, but we didn't have wingers back then. Right, so it's very interesting the way that they play, they set up, right? Because you have your back, your technical back four, but for some of the games, it wasn't really a back four because Raúl Guerrón, which was our our designated fullback, left the game and being replaced for players that were not fullbacks, and then we ended up with a back three. But Ecuador played in a very asymmetrical kind of way. So if you notice the game during that campaign, the build when we did build up. It happened through the progression of Ulises yeah. de la Cruz I did, on the right. I did, I did, I did notice in, the, in that Brazil game, the majority of chances are generated really by running through the middle and, uh, and, and the work of a midfielder, central midfielder. Exactly. So, right. Basically, for the ball to move forward, there's basically three options, right? Option number one, find Aguinaga. Where's Alex Aguinaga? Okay, get him the ball, right? Because, again, he's the most talented player on the team. It, it makes sense. Option number two. Um, where's Ulises de la Cruz? Ulises de la Cruz one of the few, was one of the few players that could carry the ball forward from the back forward, right? Dribbling through players, playing one-twos. And the third option, long ball to, to Tim Delgado, which was, and I still get ridiculed by some people for because of me saying that he's the greatest player heading the ball that I've seen in my lifetime. And this campaign is a great example of why I keep saying that. But we can talk about it afterwards. Anyways, right? So... Our midfielders, our wide midfielders, really play narrow to give chance for the fullback to move forward. So we did counterattack. However, we counterattack in a very different way than we do now. And the difference between our recent Ecuadorian teams and this one back in 2001 
is that Agustin Delgado is, well, how can I say this? He's, a, he's at, the, at the speak of his powers to say that, right? Like he finished the qualifiers with nine goals, tied with Crespo. However, Delgado did not score any penalty kicks, cough, cough. Um, so he was, he was a great target man to play for, right? And obviously any team that play against Ecuador had to make sure that Delgado is properly covered which created space for everybody else, right? This is what we see in that goal against Uruguay. Like, like Delgado received the ball after a long ball. Mm. He moves up wide, right? Two Uruguayan players follow him. We create a 2v2 in the box, and Aguinaga crosses the ball, of course, with great class. And Jaime Van Cavieres, the greatest what-if in Ecuadorian football history, <laughs> scores the magical goal that changed everything. Tim, I know that you you have quite a fascinating story about this game um, in particular because you didn't expect to be pitch side, did you? No, before that, I'm glad that we've mentioned that, that Chile game because for me, it is the fundamental, the 1-0 the, the win home to Chile, for me, is the fundamental moment. You remember the game before was the 4-0 defeat to Uruguay and in the four previous matches, the only victory was at home to Bolivia. So, Take away that win against Chile and you take away the, the self-belief. So I think that that win against Chile is the moment. And after that, you get a run of 10 games where the only defeat is against uh, Bielsa's Argentina, who were, uh, I, I feel sorry for you not being able to see them, Adam. They were great. You didn't see them in the World Cup because they were, they were, they were physically shattered. So it's a very strange World Cup for that reason. Everyone was physically shattered. Um, but they were a terrific side and no shame losing to them. So that's a terrific end to the run of the campaign. Ten, the last 10 games were just a single defeat. Now, you mentioned the um, the defence. And that there's a player there who I've, I've never, I think he's never received the credit that he should receive. Because for me, he's, he's, he's I think he was a magnificent player. And that's Ivan Hurtado. Who, and I look at Ivan Hurtado and I'm seeing Ecuador's Bobby Moore. And that's how good he was. He was a magnificent player, magnificent centre-back in that, in that calm, Bobby Moore, classy way. And they tried him um, earlier in the campaign, the third game away to Paraguay. They tried him in central midfield because that's how good he was. He could do that. But you know, they, don't, they, don't, they don't have another... Uh, and who to play alongside Hurtado, who was the other centre-back, was a problem for Gomez all, all the way through. You know, who was his, his Jack Charlton, if you like, to play alongside Bobby Moore? And you take Hurtado out of the, the, the centre-back combination and the whole thing falls apart. Hurtado was a magnificent centre-back. If, if he was Brazilian, he'd play. If he was Argentinian, he'd captain the side. You know, that's how good Hurtado was. Aguinaga. Now, Aguinaga is... is the technical genius who's carried the team for for years. But one of the themes of this campaign, and I was there in the Copa America 2001, uh, I know that uh, in Colombia, I know that, that Gomez, the Ecuador coach, didn't take it particularly seriously. But I remember that, that they, got, uh, they got a terrible beating from a, a reserve Chile side. And you could tell then, this is a year before the World Cup, that you couldn't, that they couldn't play with uh, with Delgado, Caviedes, Chala, and Aguinaga. It, which, it just left them too open. So at that point, Aguinaga becomes a substitute. In fact, he's the substitute uh, who who links up so well with 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 Delgado for uh, for that for that that vital goal from 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 Caviedes. And that I believe was a huge selection problem for Gomez for the first match in the World Cup. 
Okay, you know, it's Ecuador's first match. How do you leave Aguinaga out of out of the starting lineup? He ended up getting pulled off at at half time. I think at that stage in his career, he was just physically a little bit on the on the decline, and he was much more effective coming off the bench when there was more when there, when there, there was more space. So th- th- these are some of the themes during the campaign. But yeah, for for the game, um, it was a spur of the minute decision to go. Really, I mean, uh, two thousand and one is the year when I, I started having a little bit of money and I was able to travel and uh, uh, and and oh, <laughs> this is a true story. I was in a bookshop in Rio. And I saw going on sale at a ridiculously low price, a tourist guide to Ecuador. And I thought, well, I'm buying that and I'm going. That's made the decision for me. So I'm going. You know, because it's a long way from Rio. It's right up the other end of the continent. So uh, th- th- I bought the book and then went to my travel agent and bought the ticket and decided, right, I'm, go- I'm, I'm, I'm going to Ecuador for, for the game. And when I got up there and went to see uh, Munoz, you know, the great old player who's now doing the, doing, doing the press uh, things, he said, yeah, yeah, we looks like we've, we've overlooked you. We haven't got a press seat for you, but you know, why don't you go as a photographer? All right, fair enough. You know, I'd kind of wanted to, to, to sit in the, in the, in the you know, and, and have the panoramic view from the best seats in the house in the press box. But I ended up, as a photographer, you've got to go behind one of the goals. You can't stand on the halfway line. You get in the linesman's way. So obviously I'm standing behind the goal that Ecuador are attacking because that's where all the photographers are. That, that's where they're, they're expecting the action to be. And from there, you see such a completely different game. It, it's so different from there. You really see the human elements. And that human element was, it, it was all over Ecuador anyway. And when I arrived, the whole country was like, it's on the verge of a nervous breakdown about it. Ecuadorian TV um, that, that morning, it was just replaying over and over again, the game between Ecuador and Uruguay, in February of, of 97, in the previous qualification campaign, when Ecuador won 4-0. So, you know, the, 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 this, this was like an omen, but the whole country was like, you know, you know crossing itself and, and performing religious rituals and, and hoping and hoping and hoping. And then you get behind, um, behind the goal and you can hear what the players are saying to each other. And the one that really sticks in my mind was, and Uruguay had problems at right back. It was a problem position for them and uh, it proved a problem position for them in the World Cup um, the following year as well. Uh, and Washington Taiz was playing there and he was having a hard time and you could hear the Ecuadorian players saying play on him and you could hear Paolo Montero the Uruguayan captain trying to trying to uh, um, trying to uh, bolster his 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 morale and well we mentioned Hurtado and his his centre-back partner um, then was Espinosa who later actually came to England briefly with, with with Birmingham, who grew into I think a, not a not a bad big ugly centre back, but he was still a little bit raw. Now he got the position because Porozo, the more experienced one, kept on getting sent off. He was a, he was a crude one as well, but it was Espinosa who was playing then. Uh, and uh, Montero launched a ball out of defence, a long diagonal ball out of defence, and it ended up with Espinosa uh, right there at the other end. So I didn't have that clear a view of it, giving away a quite clumsy penalty that Nico Oliveira slotted home. This is just before half-time. Ecuador have had most of the play, but now it's 1-0. And I tell you, that was a very, very nervous stadium in Quito during the half-time interval. Javier, what, how did you experience this game? Well, it's like Tim says, it's a, it, it was a very... I was part of that Ecuadorian population who was very nervous about it. Like um, I, I was obsessed with the fact that we got beat Four zero in the first round, right? Like, unfortunately, I did not have enough. Um, what's the word? Enough of a cool head to think more objectively and try to find a different ways or different arguments that will make me relax a little more. Because in reality, 
what I could have told myself was, hey, we still have one more game, even if this goes bad. And it's against Chile, right? So there's still a chance even this goes wrong. However, it was in Ecuador. That game had to be it. There were hundreds of thousands of fans around the stadium, not just inside, but just outside as well. And the environment that will be created if we made it today would have been um, something to, to remember. Right, like it. So, I was a little of a ner- a little little of a nervous wreck, if I'm honest. Right, it was, it was, it was very hard to contain or to think straight. It was just, it's, it's like when you start watching football and then you don't analyze the game. You just live from emotion of the emotion of the events instead of seeing what happens. Well, that's what happened to me. I was jumping and screaming and just very nervous in general, right? Like, because again, we were not a- being able to to score that many goals through the campaign. And in my mind is really how many, how many times can Agustin Delgado save us, right? Like his goals are worth more than 12 points in these qualifiers. Can he do it again? Can we rely even more on him, right? Jaime Van Cavies during that time, it was when he started uh, a few years back, he's never-ending spells of loans, right? Like, so he was already not a, a consistent performer in the clubs, like in his club, in, the, in in his clubs, in any of them, ever since he left Emelec. So, like, there was all these, all these components, all these factors that did not really allow me to, to think straight or, to, to be honest, to, to be positive about it, right? Uh, at the end, we had to score against Uruguay. And Uruguay is famous for her defense. Besides, uh, I grew up as a Juventus fan. So I had huge respect for Paolo Montero. I would even say that I was slightly intimidated, the fact that we were playing against Paolo Montero. Right? So all these components play in. So I, if I had to explain it in simple words, I was a nervous wreck. That's what I was. <laughs> Luckily, I could, because uh, I'm not Ecuadorian, I could enjoy it a little bit more. But I, I didn't have too many doubts because you know, what, what I'm thinking there at halftime is, well, Ecuador have had most of the play. Yes, it's going to be difficult to break, to break uh, Uruguay down. But what you're expecting is that the effects of the altitude are going to kick in as the second half wears on. Uh, so uh, I, I was thinking, no, I think, you know, they only need to draw. They don't need two goals. They only, they, they only need a draw. But I have to admit, as we got inside the last 20 minutes, I was beginning to think, are Uruguay going to get away with this? Are they going to go away with uh, with three points and make it difficult for, for Ecuador? And the villain of the piece, I was standing next to a guy with a blazer from the Ecuadorian FA. And the villain was that man, the great what-if man, Caviedes. Everything he tried didn't work. Nothing was working. He was, he was, all of the moves seemed to end when the ball reached Caviedes. Uh, and uh, this fellow I'm standing next to, he's getting more and more irritated, and he's turning to me. And we're starting conver- uh, uh, talking about it, and he's saying, "You know, well, we've he's, we've got to get him off. We've you know he's 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 done absolutely nothing. Let's let's bring on." I mean, there was the young Carlos Tenorio just beginning to emerge. He hadn't played for the national team, uh, and he wasn't even on the bench, but he was in the squad. Uh, and, and this fellow was saying, well, you know, Tenorio should be playing. Not, you know, and we got, we, Cavier, we got Cavieres and he's, he's, it's not his day. He's gifted, but it's not his day. Take him off, take him off, take him off. And I'm agreeing with him. And then Delgado, as, uh, as, as was so brilliantly described earlier on, Delgado taking some of the defense, linking up, little layoff ball to Aguinaga. 
cross from Aguinaga, header, Carini doesn't move in the back of the net. Cavier is the man who we've we've criticised and criticised and criticised has just scored the goal that you know is going to qualify Ecuador for the World Cup because last 20 minutes altitude Uruguay they can they can draw and still keeps their keep their their, their hopes alive you know that they they they're going to hold the one one they're not going to go looking for the winner uh, and and so it was a tense last 20 minutes but there was never any real thought that Uruguay are going to score a goal and ruin the day. Just to add to what you just uh, brilliantly said, um, one of the key players here in this game, in this process, is Edwin Tenorio. Mm-hmm. If I'm very honest with you, I genuinely believe that he's my favorite player th- throughout this process. Not, of, not, of, not only because of what he does on the field, which is already extremely important, is that emotional base or foundation that the team has, that, that he will not allow them to be extremely nervous to to panic uh, or to be intimidated in general right like um <laughs> i don't know if you're aware but during the game against peru for example um in that point of the game he used his hands to do a gesture of cojones to the team to basically bring that uh, enthusiasm and desire back right there's a story that says about edwin tenorio that during the halftime against Italy in the World Cup, um, we were already 2-0 down. The team was very intimidated and, intimidated and nervous. And apparently Edwin Tenorio told the rest of the team, stop asking for autographs and mm-hmm. start playing football, right? So I think that in the past or even in the recent past, players like him are extremely important for the team mentality. Right. Especially when we're about to do something that we have never done before. Right. And that's important of having a, a player with his um, mentality that can push the team forward. Right. So I think that the fact that we were still in the game enough to score that tie and to keep the, the one one till the end. Tenorio is part of the process and part of that game. So this draw against Uruguay came at. You know, towards the end of 2001, they then awaited the draw in December for 2002 World Cup. When that draw came out, Javier, do you do you remember what your feeling was? Did you think that it was kind of a group that Ecuador could have got out of, or were you simply happy to be there and and you and you didn't mind? <sighs> no. Um, when I saw the draw, it's almost like our dreams came crashing. Right, because <laughs> Italy, Mexico, Croatia, that like not even the biggest optimistic could have thought anything other than something similar to what happened. Like I, I genuinely wouldn't I wouldn't wanna say that we did well because we didn't, because of what happened on the field, more than what happened in the points. Because ending with three points, beating Croatia, you know what? That's acceptable for a first World Cup in that group. 
However, the way that we played uh, the first two games did not show the second team in the South American qualifiers, right? It did not show everything that we have grown and improved through the last decade or so. It, it was not a first show. We did not show what we should have. So in all fairness, the group was not easy. I Nobody was excited about it. And yeah, it, it was hard to be optimistic about it. Let's put it that way. Tim, what what did you make of of Ecuador in the in the in the two thousand and two World Cup? I've heard I've heard you sort of say before that you just feel that the occasion of it all just got just got to them. Well, Gomez knew, you know, he'd lived all of this with Colombia. Uh, he knew, and we've seen this quite quite often with with Latin American sides playing their first World Cup or the first World Cup of of that generation. That the occasion is is, is huge. I wonder about the selection of Aguinaga for the Italy game. I wonder if it was if it was the right selection. Um, Aguinaga, by that stage, he was a, he was a, a an influential second half substitute. But to start the game, I think it was wrong. Um, but but how do you you know that the fellow who's, who's who's carried the banner for Ecuador for over a, you know for so many years, over a decade? How how do you leave him out? It was a, that, that was a difficult decision to take, and and as 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 Xavier said, they they really didn't do themselves justice at all in the uh, in in either of the first two games. I mean, the vital game. Let's accept that you don't expect you're going to get anything out of Italy. Let's accept that before the tournament. So the vital game is Mexico. You got to be good for the for the, for the Mexico game, and I wonder just in the Mexico game if they if they scored too soon, and and it, it meant that from a psychological point of view that they felt that they had something to lose, and that that they were just so negative in. In, in, they hardly crossed the halfway line in those games, and that wasn't the side that qualified the uh, um, second in South America, and especially in the second half of the campaign, had a terrific away record. In the second half of the qualification campaign, they were unbeaten away from home. The only defeat they suffered was at home against Argentina. So they had proved in the in, in the qualification campaign that they were they, they were more than than altitude specialists. But the World Cup, it, 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 it's a different emotional level to have the whole planet watching. Thankfully, it turned out to be too late, but they did show what they were capable of with a, with a, a, a really good win against um, against Croatia. And remember, Croatia had come third in the previous World Cup and 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 were were a very good side and a, and a very experienced and side. Croatia desperately to go through as well. Yes, so that that, that was a from the, from the point of of Croatia that, that that's a live game. It's not a it's not a just making up the numbers game at, at the end of the group. Um, for them, although unfortunately it, it was for 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 Ecuador, um, but it, it's I think Gomez was right. He it, it, it was it's part of the process, um, and my my standout memories from that game. I've I've never seen it since. Mendes is a hero of mine. I think he was he was he was a magnificent midfielder, uh, and so I was delighted to see to see him do what he did. And there's a tackle from Hurtado that saves the saves the victory, which is just immaculate. Again, it's on the level of, of, of Bobby Moore against Jairzinho. Um, but I think the important thing about the Croatia game is that it sets the platform for what Ecuador did in 2006. Because at least they come away from that tournament thinking, yeah, we can compete at this level. We can we can do it. So uh, and Gomez was probably right. It was a learning experience that they had to go through. And let's make the comparison here between Ecuador in 2002 and Jamaica in 1998. Because in 1998, the Brazilian coach, René Simoes, he qualified at Jamaica for the World Cup, which was a great achievement. But he spent all his time after qualification saying, 
we are not going to make up the numbers. We're not going for tourism. We're going to win the thing. And he was talking to a, you know, a, a footballing public that not particularly sophisticated. They had no experience of World Cups, and he he, he sold the idea that that, that Jamaica were were going going to uh, get out of the group and really compete in the World Cup. The results actually weren't that bad. they got they got hammered by by Argentina. They gave Croatia a game and they beat Japan. You come away from that thinking, well, that, that's not bad at all. But because Simoes had built up such expectations, it was seen as a crashing, crashing disappointment and Jamaica have never been back. With Ecuador in 2002, I think it was completely different. And Gomez had, had, had told them what they were going, what it was going to be like. And it, it, it turned out to be exactly that. They were overwhelmed by the occasion and, and, until the third game, by which time it was too late. But, but, as, but because everyone was prepared for that, fans, media, players, you come away from the Croatia game feeling good about yourself and that sets the platform for you know, the World Cup in beating Poland in Europe. It's an extraordinary result. Now, it's a great, great result from a team that that uh, 20 years ago, and if you look at Ecuador's record in Copa Americas before 1989, it's San Marino, it's Luxembourg, and then 2006, they're into the second round and only narrowly, in Europe, and only narrowly, narrowly going down to England in the second round of, of a World Cup. So I, I think you, you, you have to look on 2002 with its disappointments as a success and as a necessary part of, of, of the learning curve. The only thing that I would add, Tim, is that part of the frustration for the Ecuadorian population was that we didn't really feel that we we performed our abilities, like you mentioned. But more than that is that you can you can determine what mistake caused the goals against Italy and against Mexico, right? And in a game in which you have a player committing a, a massive mistake that causes a goal, it makes you feel that you never were really in it to begin with, right? Which is insane thinking that Mexico we started winning, but those two goals that Mexico scored were completely defendable right like we're not masterpieces we're not monster of goals right we're just mistakes that allow mexico to score and that's a frustration right and like you mentioned mo it has to be mostly nervous and and panic but it's it's really frustrating right like i don't i don't think that if you mention or say that the world cup in 2002 was a, a success for Ecuador, it would be well received for most Ecuadorians. Um, I understand your point, but I don't think it's that clear, right? Like it's it, it it's a very frustrating experience for Ecuadorians, especially those that lived throughout that wonderful campaign that was the qualifiers. You know what one of my big regrets in life is? That uh, while I was there in, in, in Quito, I didn't buy uh, the shirt that Ecuador wore during qualification. They didn't wear it during the World Cup. They wore a different shirt. But that shirt that they wore during during qualification, uh, I think that's such a beautiful shirt. I really wish I bought it. I'll make sure to find it for you. What size are you? <laughs> uh, usually uh, an, an L. So... Uh, <laughs> If you can, I don't usually wear too many football shirts these days. I'm I'm, I'm nearly 55, so I don't wear too many of them. But I, I, yeah, I'd love to put that one on it because it it was a magical moment, wasn't it? That 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 Sisi Pwedi, which is uh, you know, um, before before Barack Obama, it was a kind of yes, we can. Um, but that, that it, it was magical, you know, to to, to live that moment. So uh, I can only imagine what it must have been like for an Ecuadorian, you know, suffered for so long to see his his team competing with the best in that way. So uh, is it is that your outstanding? Is that the, the qualification campaign your ex outstanding, the, your most emotional moments of following the Ecuadorian national team? Well, that's a difficult question. Um, I 
I would have to say that the the, the campaign in 2002, it's on equal grounds with the World Cup experience in 2006, right? Because those victories against Poland and Costa Rica and that tight, frustrating game against England are probably high up, right? Um, However, if throughout the campaign I have to choose those magical moments, right? Like um, you mentioned that El Bolillo Gomez was shot, right? Because of the incident that he had with the Santa Rita uh, owners that were linked with the ex-president Abdallah Bucaram, right? And he was not just shot, he was sh- shot and beat up. And that was before the Peru game, right? Then he, des- he decided to stay. Well, Ecuador was a unified front wanting him to stay, which, as you mentioned initially, is not something that happens very often, right? Like the political struggles between controlling the Federation from the coast and the highlands has always been there. And the fact that Bolillo was able to unify the front and unify the country was key, right? And that that climax in, in Peru, beating Peru, because as you would also remember, we had a war with Peru in the 90s, La, La Guerra del Tigüenza, and... We have, even though I have been made aware that they don't feel as strongly as we do, we do have a rivalry that comes from the 90s with Peru. So it was very important and and an epic moment. So in that campaign, that moment was was great. And that's when the song comes out, right? And the Sisa Puede starts playing in in TV, radios, right? Even the schools played on, uh, on game day. It was, it was magical. Oh, no.